Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. In 1938, an unassuming carpenter finds himself in a German beer hall, having a couple of drinks with his meal. A regular of this establishment, this man has seemingly become a loyal customer. But this man is not here for the atmosphere or the refreshments. He is here on a personal mission. Not much of a reader, and far from a political activist, this carpenter sneaks into an upstairs closet and stays far past closing hours. Why? To plant a bomb. The target? Adolf Hitler. How will he pull off this secret plot to assassinate the world's most famous tyrant? What lengths will this carpenter go to to ensure the success of his plan? And how does a 13-minute alteration give us a glimpse of a world devoid of Hitler's fascist, genocidal ideology? Find out on today's episode of The Missing Chapter. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 10. We, uh, we enter into December, our holiday season, and it was very nice. We, we received an early uh, Christmas gift in the mail this week from the Fix Coffee House. They sent us a very sophisticated Honduras blend coffee. It's a single origin bean. Uh, they describe it with an orange zest, a cola, peanut, vanilla. It's fantastic. I think the word that, that we used when we first tasted it was smooth. It's an extremely smooth coffee. So we want to thank the Fix Coffee House in Louisville, Kentucky for, for their nice gesture, Phil. That's right. Shout out to Karen Kovach, uh, my beautiful sister who lives in Louisville, Kentucky, who owns Fix Coffee House. She's done an incredible job renovating that from what used to be the uh, Meeting Street Coffee House. It's in Norton Commons, which I, every time I'm there, it always reminds me of uh, of like Pleasantville. Everything is so meticulously um, well kept and it's, uh, it's, it's an incredible place. Check it out if you're, if you're in the Louisville area. And uh, shout out to Karen Kovach and everyone in Kentucky. Um, speaking of coffee, Phil, we also have our social media giveaway winner that we'd like to announce. So I'll hand that back over to you. Yeah, congratulations goes out to Jason Peruzzi uh, for sharing our advertisement on Facebook. He won himself a free bag of Utica coffee. Jay, as always, thanks for uh, listening. Thanks for supporting us. Enjoy the Enjoy the coffee that's coming to you. Well, today, Phil, uh, when we get into this episode, uh, we we got something I think is is pretty exciting. And I know we always say that this one, I'm, I just the more I delved into this topic, uh, the more interesting it became. And it there's um, there's so many elements of surprise and details with this that it it kind of shocked even me. And I, I had heard bits and pieces of this story before, but never have I heard it into this uh, in this depth. So hopefully, the same thing happens to our listeners. So. Give you a little timestamp of what what's happening here um, is we're we're just following World War One. Uh, Germany's facing a lot of problems internally, externally, of course, reparations, uh, accepting blame for the war, volatile economic climate, etc. I mean, we we know that that time period is is a big struggle for Germany, and we always tell our students that that almost gives Hitler uh, a platform because people are desperate. People are desperate in Germany. They're looking for someone to take over. And of course, Hitler wants to take this uh, as a way to kind of just push his own platform. So Hitler in 1923 
uh, November of 1923, attempts a coup. Uh, it's at a Munich beer hall known as a, a beer keller. So it's this beer hall in uh, you know 20th century Europe, especially especially in Germany. A lot of the larger cities in southern Germany had beer halls. Hundreds or even thousands of people would would socialize, drink beer, participate in political social gatherings, debates. Um, they had uh, political rallies in these beer kellers. So it was it was a pretty popular place to have these political social gatherings. But what Hitler decided to do was not only just hold a rally, but actually hold a coup of the German government. It was unsuccessful. He was convicted of treason, sentenced to five years in prison. Um, and uh, unfortunately, fortunately, however you look at, at history, he only spends a year behind bars, about nine, nine months uh, technically, during which time he, he um, dictates Mein Kampf, his political autobiography. He's also in the headlines across the world because of this, essentially giving him even a bigger platform to spew his Nazi agenda. But it's this event, though, that inspires the carpenter that I mentioned in the intro uh, to target Hitler at this very beer hall in Munich uh, because Hitler celebrates that attempted coup every single year at that very hall. And this carpenter needed a, to find a consistent scheduled public appearance uh, in order to you know, have some sort of accuracy as to which when Hitler is going to be where he's scheduled to be. Because we obviously need to know, uh, he needs to know, hey, do I need to be at this place, this place, at what time? Some very specific details need to take place. And do you think, do you think because of the reputation that Hitler's already kind of developing, he is more of a routine-oriented person or is he less of a routine-oriented person, Phil? Well, I don't know if too many people know this, but... Hitler had 42 attempted suicide, excuse me, not attempted suicides, attempted um, assassinations on his life. So 42, that is while he's actually in uh, as chancellor, I think there was like three or four prior to him even being chancellor mm -hmm. and this being one of them. So he starts to get this feeling that, all right, people are obviously not very happy with me. They're going to, they're going to start to make these assassination attempts. And he actually starts to brag to people that, um, He's almost has like a divine security around him to the point where he he even views himself as God. And he's he's bragging to people like, see, look how many uh, there's been 42 uh, attempted assassinations and still no one can take me down. So he's That's got this like, I don't know, he's got this aura of arrogance about him. Mm -hmm. um, and then as he as he moves around, he actually starts changing his schedule, which we're going to talk about here today, too. But in the very beginning especially when it, uh, when it comes to this time period around 1938, um, he doesn't really have a mix of schedules just yet. So he's, he's still pretty consistent and this is going to bode well for the assassin too. So it was this event though, that really is going to create almost like the perfect storm of circumstances to be for this carpenter to be successful. Um, and this assassination, it, it would need to be meticulously planned out by someone who almost had like an obsessive tension, uh, attention to detail. So that carpenter is a man by the name of Georg Elser. Now, once we westernize it, of course, it would be George Elser, the, the carpenter. So he eventually takes a train to Munich in 1938. He's visiting the beer hall where this attempted coup had started. Um, underground hall, just a little background. It's capable of holding about 3,000 or more people. So it's really a perfect place for Hitler to give a big speech, especially because it's about 15 years to the day uh, where there's an attempted coup that really 
brought the Nazis to power. So just trying to paint a little picture here for you. So Elser attended the, act, uh, the festivities. He takes note of the seller's layout and kind of makes some mental maps. But he was very surprised to realize that security was, in fact, very, very lax. And of course, that's going to be needed not just to have that specific time of that public appearance. Security is also going to have to be very, very shoddy at this point mm-hmm. in order for this to take place. And it was. So he, he's now taking it a step further. And Hitler, for whatever reason, opted for security to come from his own nationalist um, socialist German Workers Party over the Munich police. And at that time, the Munich police was very, very secure. Um, but the head of security was... I don't know how I'd want to word this, almost like a, like a convinced Nazi simply didn't really occur to him that, that a lot of people might hate Hitler enough to take really drastic action like George Elser is going to take. Um, so he kind of reduces the security that is really necessary to protect someone like Hitler. So as Elser is here attending the festivities, he's in the beer keller. He notices a stone pillar just behind uh, where Hitler is speaking uh, behind his podium, he notices that it supports a very substantial balcony along one wall. And he's quoted in saying, in the following weeks, I slowly concocted in my mind that it was best to pack explosives in that very pillar directly behind the speaker's podium. So as he's kind of concocting this um, detail and in this plan, he makes some rough calculations. And he's basically suggesting that a large bomb placed within the pillar, not just around it, would actually bring down the balcony and not only bury Hitler, but a number of chief, a number of his chief supporters, which, of course, are always going to be there uh, with him. So he realizes, listen, I, I can't just do this off a whim. I'm going to have to get the exact dimensions of this column because he's a carpenter. So he's got to build this bomb in an exact way. Uh, he's got to make his way into the beer hall itself. And more so than anything, he's got to do some reconnaissance. So he takes a camera with him the next time he goes to have a drink at this beer keller. The question was how to conceal a device sufficiently powerful to do the job within that piece of solid stonework. Because the the woodworking um, on the outside of the pillar is merely a facade. The pillar is, is actually a... Uh, a big support beam. It's it's solid concrete to, to uphold that that balcony. So Elser did prove to have those kind of qualities needed for this job because I told you it, it would have to take a perfect storm of circumstances as well as someone who's very, very intuitive with these kind of um, qualities needed to, to pull off this job. So I guess the question is, who is Elser and what kind of qualities does he have? So let me give you a little background of this guy. He's born in 1903. So he's about 35 when all this this goes down. Um, he's just below average height, just above average intelligence. Most people uh, say that that knew him. Not much really of a thinker, but he's really really clever with his hands. Expert cabinet maker. Um, he never he never read books. Rarely touched newspapers, and really had little interest altogether in politics. So as I'm painting this picture, you're probably thinking, well, why would this guy ever choose to do this? Well, he's a typical member of the German working class in the 1930s. What he did care about was the way that the Nazis and their policies were almost reducing ordinary German standard of living. All right. So at this point, people are already struggling. Hitler is coming in with this this very um, 
embellished and utopian kind of society that he wants to create. But working hours become really long. Holidays, very few. Trade unions, political parties, dissolving, banned, wages, frozen. And meanwhile, the members of the Nazi party are enjoying privileges that weren't really available to people like Elser and those who refused to join. So he's really starting to gather some resentment and gather some ideas. And in my personal opinion, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, Phil, and I, I think we've talked about some of the home renovations that we've we've done over the past, but there's two type of carpenters. There are one of those half-hearted carpenters who never finish a job. And then there's also the, the perfectionist type of carpenters who really take care of their work, find it hard to make ends meet, uh, but still just have so much passion in what they're doing. And uh, that's Elser. You know, he he does have a, a tough time making ends meet, especially in Germany. Uh, real wages are declining, but you can tell he is a perfectionist with what he does. And just listening to what you've already told us, he's obviously committed to what he's about to try and carry out. And that mindset and the skills he possesses really are what it's going to take to actually carry out his plan. Completely. You need that mindset of of a perfectionist, somebody who is not going to go into this without a plan, just the exact opposite. Right, exactly. So I I hope that the listeners are really gathering this, this visual where you picture that person who is so meticulous and working with the smallest piece of wood that really no one would ever notice um, in a renovation, but to them, they notice. So for him, that's the exact kind of carpenter. And I just love hearing this story too, because you do, you forget that people like Elser existed in Germany prior to 1939, prior to World War II, because you really did. And, and Hitler was just overwhelmingly popular. Yeah. But at the same time, there are some people who weren't buying into what he was trying to sell to the Germans. Exactly. You know, as we, we always tell our students too, that Hitler was very good at a lot of things. Um, and one of them was, was the propaganda piece. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't matter if his, his theories were proven or not. He was very good at convincing people that what he was planning on doing was going to work. And I love the fact Elser is going to use the podium as a way of, yes. of carrying this out because it was such an, an integral part of, you know, Hitler's rise to power and, and rise to popularity. And, you know, it could potentially be his downfall here. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great analogy. So I, I think as, as Elser gets going with this, uh, he starts to really um, feel that, that this needs to happen. So he's quoted in saying, I considered that the situation in Germany could only be changed by the elimination of the current leadership. So there were only a few public signs that Elser really didn't like Hitler. Let me give you a couple. Uh, he refused to listen to the dictator when he came on the radio. Uh, he wouldn't give the Nazi salute when everybody else did. There was a pro-Hitler parade that passed through his hometown uh, in southwestern Germany. He turned his back and started whistling. Um, Elser really never told anyone that his views were kind of getting to like assassin levels. And he remained almost entirely solitary. He wasn't married. Uh, he was estranged from his father. And that's kind of a story in itself. But it was it was pretty typical So if we kind of gather all this information. And it's almost expected of the man that in early 1938 didn't really look for help to carry out the assassination. He's kind of a kind of a loner, but he's also one of those types where as a meticulous carpenter, he would rather do the work himself. So knowing that he had a year to prepare, he went to work methodically, obtaining a, a low-paying job even in an arms factory, smuggled, get this, 110 pounds of high explosives, 
uh, out of the plant that he was working in. He even hid packets of powder in his bedroom. He takes another temporary job in a quarry, and the quarry supplied him with dynamite and a quantity, a huge quantity of high-capacity detonators. Um, while he was there, he collects an arsenal of 105 blasting cartridges, 125 detonators. Uh, he was quoted in saying, I knew two or three detonators were sufficient for my purposes, but I thought the surplus will increase the explosive effect. So now it's just taken his idea from, I think this might work, to, okay, he's he's ready to become an assassin and take on that title. And it's probably the focus of, of his life at this point. Right. And it, you can almost see the uh, the gears grinding in his brain to the point where now you you visualize him almost obsessing over this. Mm-hmm. Because it would, it would have to take that in order to pull something like this off. So at night, he returns to his apartment after he, he works uh, and he starts working on designs for a very, very sophisticated time bomb for this time period. Um, and you can almost imagine like a, as he's bringing all these things into his apartment, by the way, he was, he was periodically in and out of uh, shared apartment complexes in which some people actually just welcomed him in because he was going in between jobs. So he didn't have a lot of money. Um, when his friends were asking what he was working on, he just called it a, a quote invention. All right. So they, they just kind of said, ah, he's one of those types that just likes working with his hands. Maybe he is. And didn't really ask any questions and really never gave him any, any indication otherwise, but he was for sure the man for the job because of that meticulous attention to detail. So he works incredibly hard, uh, to produce the most efficient bomb he could. He modifies a clock. He creates a timer that would run for up to 144 hours before activating a lever. That lever would trigger a system of springs and weights that would actually launch a piece of steel called a shuttle into a live rifle round in which uh, would ignite the explosives. So in typical Elser fashion, here we go. He added a second timer to act as a failsafe. All right. Then encloses the whole bomb in this beautifully built box designed to, to, to fit precisely into the cavity that he was going to excavate in the, in the, the pillar. The amount of planning that's going into this is phenomenal. It's he's, unbelievable. He's actually inventing new things. Exactly. In order to carry out the plan. Exactly. So it's about seven months before his assassination attempt. So it's April, 1939. He returns to Munich to carry out a really even more detailed reconnaissance. So imagine this. Imagine getting into a train and, and, and taking all this with you. So he's got a, a, a false bottom wooden suitcase that he carries with him. In it, powder, explosives, a battery, detonators, and he's got a couple other boxes carrying his clothes, some clock movements and trinkets like that, and some tools. Okay, He, goes, he even goes to the Swiss border. Uh, to work on an escape route, finding a stretch of the border that wasn't really patrolled very well. So that August, uh, things start to change in Europe. Hitler's fueling tension with Poland. Europe is slipping into war. Um, Elser actually moves, physically moves to Munich and begins the final prep work for planning his device. So he's he's taken all of his stuff uh, with his you know false bottom suitcase and all of his other luggage with him and all the tools that he needs. So now the work, of course, as we can imagine, involves just major, major risks. Um, I, have, I kind of even feel like it reveals almost an imaginative side, uh, imaginative side to Elser uh, and his personalities that I don't really think too many people had, especially for this time period. But 
now that he was happy with all the prep work with the bomb, he needs to get to the beer hall and really start taking advantage of that lack security. And he does. He becomes a regular customer. So each night he would uh, have dinner, order a beer, uh, wait until closing time. Then he slips upstairs. He hides in a storeroom, uh, what they call the storeroom then, and what we would call a closet now, uh, and would come out about 1130 at night, get down to the crucial job of, of really hollowing out that pillar. He stays all night inside the hall and ready. He does this about 30 to 35 times in total, sneaking in and out of the beer keller. He makes sketches of the beer cellar. He takes more precise measurements. And if you've ever had a project with, with work, woodworking especially, or really doing anything carpentry related, you can you know that those processes can be really painstaking and slow. And this is really no different. But here's the catch. He can't let anyone know, obviously, that he's, he's doing this. So he actually works by flashlight. He dims the flashlight by placing a blue handkerchief over the flashlight. And he first started by installing a secret door in the wooden paneling to the pillar, of course, behind the speaker's podium. So this job alone, just creating that secret door, takes him three nights. After removing the plaster behind the door, he then hollows out a chamber in the brickwork for his bomb. He finishes around 2, 3 in the morning. He dozes off in the, in the closet, uh, off the gallery, until the doors were unlocked at about 6.30 in the morning. He would then leave through a rear door and he usually carries that small suitcase. And this time it's filled with debris. Now, once he's done with that job, he's going to attack the pillar itself. And of course, anyone who's ever drilled into concrete, like my kids, when we were renovating our basement, they know how awful that sound it makes and how loud it is. So the noise of a chisel breaking the stone would echo so loudly through that empty beer keller that Elser knows this and times it so he would make a single blow every few minutes so the the strike of the hammer would actually coincide with either a passing of a streetcar or automatic flushing of the urinals so he even knew that he did enough reconnaissance to know that they actually have automatic timers on those things the amount of patience it it would take and you've said over the amount of time like the timeline for this is phenomenal that he wasn't detected Right. At least up until this point. And the patience he's had is just, it's phenomenal to me. It's its almost painful. Right. Like to, to go through this amount, like he really is a man on a mission. So like every piece of stone, um, and think of the dust that had to be swept up to leave no evidence at all of his work. You're, you're absolutely right. It's it just, the process is unbelievable. So then the panel he had cut out of the wood, of course, would have to be pretty much seamlessly replaced so none of the workers or, or even the, the people, the customers, the patrons would notice. So Elsa returns to the beer keller night after night after night. And there is one night, though, when you mentioned the fact that no one really caught him, there is one night I should mention that he actually was nearly caught. A waiter actually found him inside the building as the place was opening. Um, he ran to tell, tell the manager the manager came out, stops and questions Elser, and then Elser just insists repeatedly. He was just simply an early customer. You know, I, you've seen me here before. I just got here a little early. He ordered a coffee and it kind of like settled things down. He drank it in the garden and, and left undetected. So he even doing his reconnaissance and actually showing his face and becoming a loyal customer um, actually proved helpful. But 
he obviously didn't want anything to be discovered, himself included. So I love this part too. Obsessively, he actually lined the cavity that he created out of the pillar with cork. So it would muffle the noise from the clock. Then he places a sheet of tin. I, I, you, no one would ever think of this. He places a sheet of tin inside the wood panel to prevent any worker who would drive a nail, you know, like if you're driving a nail to put up decorations or something, to prevent that, that one person to drive a nail into, into the bomb. So he puts a piece of tin up to prevent that from happening. So he's really thought of everything. So when he's finished, he goes back to the beer keller with a box he'd made and he did some final measurements. Those final measurements actually make him realize that it's by fractions of an inch, a little bit too big. So now he's got to take it home. He planes it down, uh, goes back again to make sure it fit. And this time, typical Elser fashion, it fits flawlessly. So now it's time to figure out how much time he should allot for the bomb. He researched when Hitler always plans a speech, uh, specifically in the hall and other public speeches. And he always, Hitler always started at around 8.30 uh, at night, 8.30 p.m. He usually sp speaks for about 90 minutes or so, and then usually stays to mingle with the crowd. So he's usually there for a pretty long time at the beer keller. So on that basis alone, he, he figures out, okay, I'm going to set the bomb to explode at 9.20 p.m., about midway through Hitler's you know, customer yelling, ranting, tirade. So I, I need you to remember that time, though. 9.20 p.m., okay? 9.20. 9.20. So finally, he's planting the bomb three days before Hitler's due. He seals it in, removes the last traces of his work, you know, sweeps up everything that, that is, would be considered evidence. And then he goes to Munich uh, two nights later. So it's just 24 hours before Hitler was due to speak. Now, he anticipates that even with Hitler's shoddy security guards and, and those kind of regiments, that they would probably amp up security 24 hours in advance. So he breaks back into the peer, uh, at the beer keller at a more unusual time than he usually does. And he presses his ear, I just love this visual, presses his ear up against the pillar to check that his device was still ticking. All systems go at this point. It was very thorough. very thorough. Very thorough. However, had Elser paid closer attention to the newspapers, because remember, he didn't read newspapers or books, he might have felt that all of his work had really been wasted. That was in vain because really shortly before Hitler was due to deliver his beer keller speech, Hitler cancels the arrangement altogether, but then later reinstates it the day before he was due to travel there. But once again, had Elsa read the newspapers, he would also realize that because Hitler needed to be in Berlin, his speech had to be rescheduled. So it's rescheduled twice. But it's now, instead of starting at that 8.30 time that he usually does, it's now going to begin at 8 p.m. so he can make it to Berlin. And correct me if I'm wrong, you said the clock and the timer was set for 9.20. 9.20. Okay. So the speech is set to begin at 8 p.m., but it lasts a little more than an hour. Okay. So the timing is off a little bit. So here we are. The speech has begun. Hitler's fired up. He's yelling. He's giving, giving his typical tirade. But atypically, he stops his speech much, much shorter than usual. For whatever reason, he stops speaking at 9.07 p.m. precisely. He, people are offering uh, you know, his usual drinks afterwards. Like, like we said, I mean, this is 15 years in the making. He's always done this um, every single year. But for whatever reason, 
9.12, he hurries out of the beer keller and back to the Munich Railroad Station. If Hitler had just spoken for 13 minutes longer, history would have been completely different altogether. And it was eight minutes after Hitler left the building. Elser's bomb exploded uh, in a blinding flash. And in typical Elser fashion, as, as I keep mentioning, it's right on time. The tyrant was boarding his train with his crew. Most of the beer keller crowd had left the building. And it wasn't until the Berlin Express train uh, stopped briefly at Nuremberg that this unbelieving Hitler actually learns how close he had come to death. And at 9.20, of course, Elser, too, was far from the beer hall. Now, that morning, he had taken a, a train into this place called Constance, uh, close to the Swiss border. And at night, he walks into Switzerland, the same route that he had planned before. As Hitler's luck held that night, at this point, Elser's is, is going to run out. Uh, Elser's reconnaissance in April had taken place in peacetime. But remember, Germany's now at war uh, at this time, November. So the border had actually been closed. So he's arrested by a patrol guard as he was finding his way through barbed wire and a mere 80 feet from the Swiss border. So these Swiss guards take him. They they tell him, um, or not the Swiss guards, excuse me, the the, the guards uh, of the Swiss border are telling him to turn out his pockets, quickly finds out, uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in pretty big trouble because in his pockets, ready? Sketches of the bomb design, a fuse, his Communist Party membership card, and an actual picture postcard of the beer keller itself. Pretty, I would say, pretty incriminating collection of evidence, uh, especially because minutes later, an urgent telegram arrives with news about an explosion at the beer keller. So even though Elser's life was spared as well as Hitler's, when the explosion goes off, just like uh, Elser had planned, the balcony falls, eight people lose their lives, 60 people are injured, and George Elser is taken back to Munich for interrogation. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. It's just unbelievable how unfortunate a guy whose planning had been so meticulous He'd, ha- he'd been so lucky up until this point. I mean, this is what got him here. He's 80 feet from, from the Swiss border, and now his luck seems to, to have run out. Not only to have gotten caught, but to have such incriminating materials in his pocket. I'm yeah. interested to see what – this can't go well for him, I'm guessing, afterwards. Unfortunately, no. But it's probably not the, the, the way you're thinking because, obviously, Hitler is going to take a vested interest in this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, word is going to come out that they've captured him, they have him. And Hitler being Hitler, you would you would imagine a certain amount of vengeance is in the back of his mind. Right. Uh, he Hitler himself does take a close interest in, in Elser. He wants to see his file. He uh, comments uh, favorably on his, quote, intelligent eyes, uh, Elser's high forehead and determined expression. So he... <laughs> For one reason or another, he's taking a very, very detailed um, invested interest in this guy. But for Hitler, the sophistication of the plot itself, because it was so obsessive 
um, and really meticulously laid out, that for him was evidence that the British Secret Service was behind it. So he couldn't, he really just couldn't in his head articulate the fact that a, a lone guy who is very unassuming on the outside would come up with such a, an articulate plan. Um, and it's funny because Hitler was quoted in saying, what idiot conducted this investigation? So he actually demands that um, there's no way Elser worked alone. It's got to be the investigator that's at fault here. And do you think that he, the fact that he was a German threw him off too? That, that that's he true. couldn't accept yeah. the fact that his, that's a great one point. of his own countrymen had it out for him. Yeah, very, very similar to that, that guard that uh, he put in charge of the security of the beer keller. When, when you're a convinced Nazi, you, you, especially in the beginning, mm -hmm. there's no way anyone else would, would go to these lengths to, to, you know, hate you that much. But of course, Elser at this point now has been captured. He's uh, been subjected to, to beatings, uh, hypnosis, torture, uh, in an attempt to, to get at what Hitler calls his truth. Okay. So he actually brings in three doctors that work on Elsa for 24 hours. He inject him with, um, quote, sizable quantities of methamphetamine. He continues to say the same thing, though. He, even four hypnotists uh, were, were summoned in. Only one actually could put Elsa in a trance, which is actually pretty interesting alone because it, it tells you how smart this guy is. Uh, but once again, prisoner stuck to this, uh, the same story. He's saying, no, I worked alone. I worked alone. The psychologist that was working with him report, uh, reported that Elser was, quote, a fanatic. Um, he had a pathological desire for recognition. So we don't know if that was a true sentiment of what he believed or if that was just Hitler kind of injecting his own opinion. But he concluded by saying pointedly that Elser had the drive to achieve fame by eliminating Hitler and simultaneously liberating Germany from the evil of Hitler. So very, very interesting analogy from this guy. But the day after the bombing, um, there were some very outraged SS guards at one of the, the many concentration camps, and, and they wanted to take revenge. So they go in and they, of course, who to blame? Let's blame the Jews. Uh, 21 Jews were killed uh, by firing squad. All Jews uh, in that very camp suffered food deprivation because they removed all the food for three days from that camp. Uh, the Gestapo went into a village, uh, actually where Elser lived uh, periodically, to interrogate any associate of Elser, asking the same questions over and over for months on end even. Uh, the village was, quote, stigmatized as the nest of criminals and actually became known as Assassinville. Elsewhere, uh, everyone who might have been, had contact with Elser was hunted down, interrogated by the Gestapo. The Munich locksmith, who actually unwittingly supplied Elser with metal parts for the very bomb, was actually bound and beaten, detained for two weeks by the Gestapo, but once again, Elser stuck to his story. And if you're going to go through this much and knowingly have all these people suffer this much and you're not changing your story, they're starting to really show that maybe this guy is, is actually uh, making sense and telling the truth. He even reproduces a version of his bomb to show the Gestapo that he actually built it. So eventually, there's, there's a historian by the name of Roger Morehouse, and he says Himmler himself actually arrives in Munich. To continue the interrogation. So we know Himmler, of course, uh, is Hitler's right-hand man. And Himmler, in this interrogation, says, with wild curses, Hitler and Himmler drove the boots hard into the body of the handcuffed Elser. He then had him taken to a laboratory where he was beaten with a whip or some similar instrument until he howled with pain. He was then brought back at the double 
to me, Himmler, who was once more kicked and cursed. So through all this, the, once again, the carpenter sticking to his story. Eventually, the Gestapo gives up. Uh, they pack him off to a concentration camp. So the part that I'm kind of curious about is, it, oddly enough, he's not executed immediately or even badly treated there. He's actually, he's in solitary confinement, but he's allowed a bench, his tools, and he's actually kept alive up until the last month of the war, which, I mean, we could go into a bait and to why. I don't know if maybe Hitler wanted to maybe gather more info, but he's actually treated quite nicely other than the solitary confinement, which is kind of confusing to me. But it's generally supposed maybe the Hitler wanted to keep him alive. Uh, there's some people that are trying to think that, trying to gather information, and maybe he's trying to implicate the British in the Munich plot almost as a way to um, gain more following to attack the, the British uh, military. That's all speculation, though. But either way, Elser shipped to Dachau, where as the German defeat in World War II was imminent, Hitler ordered his would-be assassin's death. So on April 9th, 1945, four weeks before the end of the war in Europe, uh, George Elser, 42 years old at the time, was shot dead. Uh, and his fully dressed body was immediately burned in the crematorium of the Dachau concentration camp. And exactly three weeks later, <clears throat> Hitler would finish Elser's job by, of course, committing suicide. Uh, and the interesting part also is that Elser was barely even acknowledged in the culture of the Republic of Germany until the ready 1990s. Wow. It was then that a biography of Elser was written um, and about nine years later it was published in which painted him uh, in a more heroic light. So we're talking about 1999 in which we really start to bring Elser to light. So that was followed by an expanded and revised edition in 2009. So up until very recently, he was really silenced from the German culture and almost censored out of his history, perhaps. And then since 2001, every two years, the George Elser Prize is awarded for courage. Uh, at least 60 streets and places named after Elser in Germany, several monuments. But as a German journalist wrote in 2005, Elser was for so long ignored by the historians of both East and West Germany, it merely goes to show just how long it took Germany to become comfortable with honestly confronting its own history. George Elser, though, defied ideological categorization, and for that reason, he is a true German hero. And I think that's that's the lasting legacy of a guy who is incredibly meticulous, very passionate about his job, but in the same sense, would want to go through a mercy killing to save thousands of people in World War II. Well, Phil, as we close out this episode, I think any listener of any podcast wants to look forward to the next episode. So let's give them a little taste of what we got for next time. Yeah, and Phil, that was, that was a great story. Thanks for sharing it with us. Um, December is not going to be short on surprises and, and big announcements for the missing chapter. So stay tuned. We have some really fun things uh, in store for you guys, the listeners. Our next episode is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have another guest speaker who's going to introduce us uh, to some musical elements to the missing chapter and, uh, and maybe even perform for us a little bit. So that'll give you guys something to look forward to and something that Phil mentioned in a previous chapter, we're getting ready to release some of our, um, some of our shorts. So like I said, lots of fun stuff ahead. Continue to listen. Thanks for uh, going along with us on this journey. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. I'm Phil Horinder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.